We open the Word of God and read from the Psalms, Psalm 145. Psalm 145. This is the Word of the Lord, David's Psalm of Praise. I will extol extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty, and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts." And I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand, and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him, He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. There ends our reading of God's holy word. The text for the sermon is verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised And his greatness is unsearchable. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, this text is very familiar to us and it's beautiful and poetic. It just rolls off the tongue. And in fact, when you are communing with your own heart and about to pray, or you're praying in public and you're looking for those ready words of praise with which to extol the name of our God in your prayers, these are probably the words sometimes that come off your tongues because they're so memorable. He's great, greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. It's a confession that serves to warm our hearts and comfort us in distress 
It serves to excite us for the day when we might behold His greatness in the age of perfection. It's a wonderful confession and a true confession that we consider tonight. And it's good for us to hear a sermon on it, to hear it declared to us. Sometimes we want to shy away from a verse like this, at least from the point of view of a preacher, or at least from my point of view, because it's so familiar. It's so self-evident in the meaning of it that you wonder if you can even do justice to a truth like God's greatness. And the reality is that you really can't. And that's partly the point. We can't do justice to the greatness of God. Not as preachers, not as saints, not as men. He is too great. So it's good for us to look into a truth like this and come to a point of what I'll call holy frustration. We understand the basic truth and we can grasp the basic truth and we look into this truth and search out the depths of it and we, we search and we search and we endeavor onward and forward and we think there's more here. There's more here and yet we know we, ha- we don't know the half of it. We don't know a fraction of it. He is so great we can't search him out. It's good for us that we're reminded both of our smallness and of His greatness and the benefit that it, that is to us. It's good for us to be humbled, to remember that we know nothing yet as we ought to know. It's good for us to be reminded that we have no knowledge of God except that which He graciously gives to us in Jesus Christ. It's good for us to be reminded that the God whom we worship now is worthy of praise, worthy of our worship, worthy of a praise and worship every moment of every day forever and ever. A consideration and a contemplation of the greatness of Jehovah will yield good fruit. It will yield good fruit out of the hearts of those who have come by faith to know our great God. May it be that God will bring good fruit out of your heart and my heart tonight as a result of contemplating His unsearchable greatness. May the fruit be heard in our voices as we sing songs of the highest praise, may his, this fruit be apparent to our consciences as we walk before the God of infinite mercy. May this fruit be evident in our choices as we seek always with all wisdom to please the God who is great. And may it dictate also our outlook as we hold up hold out our hope knowing that everything good that he has promised us shall surely be granted the unsearchable greatness of jehovah is the theme of the sermon first let's consider the meaning of 
the meaning of it. Second, the revelation of it. And third, the confession of it. There is some parallelism here in the psalm in verse 3. Sometimes parallelism is in couplets. We have two lines. Here's one line, and right beneath it, there is another line. And we take those parallel phrases, and we hold them over each other, and we let them inform each other. And now in this verse, we have a triplet or a trio of phrases, and all three are parallel. There's one on the top and one in the middle and one on the bottom. And now we fold it up and we want to put it all together and let all of these phrases inform one another. And there is one central idea that comes out of it. We'll get there in just a minute. But part of the exercise of studying the Word and exploring this concept is that we see how these phrases are shedding light on one another. There's a simple relationship between these three phrases. There is, first of all, the first phrase, Great is the Lord. Great is Jehovah. And when we begin with greatness, and then we look at the other two phrases, we can go to His greatness, the last phrase, and and look at the character of His greatness. He is not just great. He is great to a degree that cannot be searched out. And the result of one who is great, that's Jehovah, is that the praise is due to Him. There's the simple relationship. So the relationship is the first, the first phrase, great is the Lord. To understand that phrase, we go to the last. His greatness is unsearchable. And we go back to the beginning and we understand This God of unsearchable greatness is greatly to be praised. And that tells us not only that He is the one who is great, but it tells us what it is to be great. To be great is to be praiseworthy. To be unsearchably great is to be worthy of great praise. Now, I know that there is a lot there in that you might even be a little bit turned around and confused because there is connections here, there, and everywhere, but this is the practice of looking into the Scriptures and the practice of interpreting parallelism, and from connecting all of these dots and ideas, we can pull out one main idea, and the main idea is that Jehovah is great, And that his greatness is the infinite perfection of all of his being and his attributes. His greatness is his infinite perfection of all of his being and his attributes. This psalm does not declare that what, or this verse does not declare that what God does is great. That's true. It does not declare that his purposes and his works are great. That's also true. But the meaning here is that He is great. He is great and greatly to be praised. He in His greatness is unsearchable. Now we need to understand greatness, and great as an adjective as we use it can be used in a wide variety of ways. What is it when something is great? We can look at something that is large, of great size, and say this this skyscraper is great. 
great. These mountains are great. It can also be used, great, as a term to describe something of excellent goodness. So that we have a dish served to us. There's food on our tables. And children, you might, it might be your favorite meal. And you say to your, your mother, this food is great. It means it's, it's good. So pleasing. There's no flaws in it. It's exactly how you like it. It can also be a term to describe something of stature or renown. So that here is a work of art. And it's a great work of art. It's a masterpiece. Or here is a man of renown, a great author. He's written some excellent books. And so he is a great author. And the reason we go through and look at how we can use that term in a variety of ways is that that helps us because we're going to need that variety when we explore the greatness of our God. When it comes to our great God, He is not just great in one way. He is great in an infinite number of ways. So His greatness does not just extend in one direction, but the other direction, and in this direction, and that direction. He is so infinitely great. We can understand His greatness in terms of knowledge, and mercy, and righteousness. And His knowledge is perfect. It's a great knowledge. There's no lack in His knowledge. He knows everything. His greatness can be understood in terms of His mercy. There's a great amount of His mercy. There's no depth to which He cannot reach and no height to which He will not lift us. We can speak of His righteousness as being unblemished. In His righteousness, He never wavers, never departs from that which is straight. What we're not going to do with the term great is understand it in a comparative way. God is not to be understood as great because He is the greatest. That can be understood properly. We don't need to be too rigid in that. But that's not the way the Scriptures speak. The Scriptures speak of God as one to whom no one can be compared he is not just the greatest. He is greatness. So I said that the main idea here is his greatness and that he is great. And we need to understand that this conveys infinite perfection of his being and attributes. Infinite perfection. And I can... We can also understand those separately. It is both his infinity and his perfection. There's the flexibility that we need with this idea of his greatness. So it reveals his infinity. When Jehovah is great, he is infinite. That's the reason we can't search him out. His greatness is unsearchable. It is infinite. There's no end to it. And there are certain attributes and qualities of the divine being that we can't see an end of. That is his power. There's no limit on his power or his goodness or his love or his mercy. In all of these things, there's no end. There's no limitation. There's no restriction on these attributes of God. 
In other places and with other attributes, we can, it's more helpful to think of his greatness in terms of perfection or completeness so that we look at his attribute of sovereignty and we see that his sovereignty is perfect. There's no realm of the universe over which he is not in control or his wisdom He is perfect in wisdom. Not only is he not foolish, God forbid we could even think that way, but everything he does perfectly leads to his good end. His righteousness, like we said, is unblemished, never departing from harmony with his own nature. His faithfulness, he is always faithful. His truth, there's no lie It comes forth out of the mouth and the word of God. And then there are those attributes that are self-evident in their infinite perfection. Attributes like omnipresence. He is here and everywhere. His glory fills the earth. His omniscience. He knows all things. In his eternality, he endures forever, even outside of time. And when we contemplate the infinite perfection of all of God's attributes, which are all one, we can really boil it down to this one incommunicable attribute, and that is his incomprehensibility. He is incomprehensible. And he is incomprehensible in Every one of his attributes. Are you frustrated yet? Now a lot of words have come out of my mouth and I pray that these words are true. I'm confident that they are by the grace of God. But have we, even in the practice of preaching or the hearing of preaching, already allowed ourselves to have a divide between the God of greatness, who lives in the doctrine of greatness? The scriptures lead us to contemplate God's greatness, his unsearchable greatness, for a variety of reasons and for a variety of purposes. In this text, it is a response to the revelation of God's greatness. We're not yet to the revelation. Just look at the form of the text, though. He's praising God and he's exhorting those around him and leading those around him, David is, to sing praises to God. He's resolving to praise the God of unsearchable greatness. This psalm is praise. There's a good reason to contemplate God's greatness. If we go to another passage of Scripture, like Isaiah 40, we'll see that God's greatness is an idea developed there, thoroughly developed. And that there's another purpose there than the direct purpose of praise. In Isaiah 40, 
We have the greatness of God revealed in verse 12 when we, there are these rhetorical questions throughout the chapter. After the exhortation or the declaration in verse 9, Behold your God. Zion is exhorted to declare, Behold your God. Who is he? Who hath measured the waters, the oceans, in the hollow of his hand? Who has meted out the heaven with a span? There's the greatness of God. You, can you take all of the heavens? Take God's hand? You can measure it with one hand. Who has comprehended the dust of the earth? Take all the dirt, all the dust, all the sediment of the earth, and the beaches, and the oceans, and the mountains, and the deserts, and he has taken all of it, and he's, he's comprehended, he's brought them all in just a measure, something that we might put a little bit of flour in. Who has weighed the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? Who hath taught him? With whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him and taught him judgment and knowledge in the way of understanding? The nations to him are as a drop in the bucket and counted as small dust. So when you empty the scale and you take the pan and you dump it out, and there's these tiny little specks left on the dust of the balance. There's the nations. They're nothing. The man at the market doesn't count those little specks. Those nations are nothing to God. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare to him? And in verse 22, it's he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to, ju- to nothing, and makes the judges of the earth as vanity. There's no one equal to God. And lift up your eyes and look, to, look on high to heaven. Who created the stars, these bodies in heaven? And God calls them all by name and by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one of them faileth. Why all of this demonstration of God's greatness in Isaiah 40? To comfort the people. Why sayest thou, O Jacob? And speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. Wait upon the Lord. Isaiah builds up the people of Israel in their affliction by leading them to see and remember God's greatness. In Job chapter 11, more briefly now, the greatness of God serves another purpose, and it serves the, the main message of the book of Job, which is to stop any pride and any, any pride and rebellion in relation to Jehovah, Zophar the Naamathite, speaks essentially the same doctrine as David in Psalm 145. 
Job 11, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know? There's some beautiful language, and though Job had some miserable counselors, it doesn't mean everything they said was false. This was very true. And it puts every man in their place. Can you find out God to the end of it? Do you know him perfectly? It's high as heaven. It's deeper as hell. Deeper than hell. We must reckon with the reality that God is unsearchably great. And we must rejoice at the reality that God is unsearchably great. And we could go to many other passages of Scripture, and maybe you can search out some of the language that extols the greatness of God. High as heaven, deeper than hell. There's a couple of them. Longer than the earth, he goes on to say, and broader than the sea. We read in other places of mercies that are from everlasting to everlasting and from as far as east to west. We can read of love that is strong as death, a word that framed the world, the power to call the dead to life, a mighty arm that doeth wondrous things. Ways and thoughts that are infinitely higher than ours. Wisdom and knowledge that are exceedingly deep and rich and past judgments that are past finding out. There is a presence that one cannot flee from and escape. There are eyes that see everything. Ears that hear every cry. Justice that can never be denied. Do you know this God? Do you worship this God? Do you trust this God? Only by the grace of God do we. God reveals himself to us. God makes his greatness known. He makes himself known and thereby makes his greatness known. For God to have his purpose accomplished, that is, that we should praise his greatness, there are three things that are part of that process. There is, first of all, the revelation, then there is the reception, and then there's the response. Just briefly, this is how the end of God is, is realized. God makes himself known. There is no knowledge of God's greatness and no praise without it. If his rational moral creatures don't know him, then, and they can't know him, except God reveals himself. God reveals himself in general revelation and special revelation. He makes himself known in creation, his power, his anger, his wisdom, his orderliness, and he makes himself known in the scriptures, which is special revelation. And only in this way do men come to know God through Jesus Christ. That is only through special revelation. The whole world, however, sees that God is great, knows there is a God and that he is great in power by his works in creation. And so they too are without excuse and they will have to answer for their denial of this truth their denial of God's greatness. They will sit before the God of judge, perfect judgment in the great white throne and they will be dumb 
before the God of all greatness and wonder at themselves how they ever could have denied to the, the praise that he is due. And fallen, totally depraved, sinful man, that's us. We suppress and pervert the revelation of God and his greatness. And so we do not receive that which God reveals in truth. We pervert it and we suppress it and we deny it. And so for there to be a proper reception, God must do a work of grace in the hearts and minds of his people through Jesus Christ. And then when they have received that revelation in truth, then they will respond when their hearts are renewed and they will be inclined, according to that grace, to praise the God of all greatness. A revelation, a reception, and a response, each of which is a testament to the grace of God in Christ. That's the only possibility that we come to praise to know and to praise the God of all greatness. So that leads us then to see the necessity of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the necessity of the Holy Gospel in which we come to know God through Christ. When God gives Christ, when he pictured Christ, when he promised Christ, when he gave types and shadows of Christ, when he fills the church with Christ and by his spirit, when he speaks through Christ to the church, he is equipping the church to know himself and to praise his greatness. Jesus is great. Jesus is the Son of God, great in his divine nature, his divine being, He is the brightness of His glory, so that God's unsearchable greatness shines through Him, brilliantly so. And then this great God, the Son of God, takes on our human flesh, and there's both a mystery there and there is salvation there. It's the only possibility that we can come to a saving knowledge of our God. And because Christ in our flesh continues in His unsearchable greatness, he's able to carry out the duties to which he was appointed. He is able to be our chief prophet and teacher and make known God's will concerning our redemption. He is able to be our only high priest and offer an acceptable sacrifice to God, sustaining the burden of God's wrath in its fullness so that we might be spared from that judgment. He's able to bear the curse and descend into hell and submit himself to the grave as a servant, and also to raise himself up out of it in perfect righteousness, having fully paid for all of our sins. And he's able to fulfill his role as our eternal king, living forever. Only a great king can do that. Because he is great as he lived in our flesh, he could, with heart, soul, mind, and strength, love God perfectly and love his neighbor as himself, fulfilling all righteousness, thereby meriting for himself a place in heaven and heavenly riches which he pours forth unto us because he is great. His word that he speaks from heaven through human 
weak mouthpieces goes forth and saves souls as that word is engrafted into their hearts. Only a God of greatness can do such a work. Only a God of greatness would be pleased and would be pleased to use something like preaching to save souls. The world mocks foolishness of preaching, we stand in awe at a God who is so great to use the spoken word, even through sinful men, to save us. And in Christ, we see the greatness of our God. We see the perfection of his love when he lays down his life for us. We see the infinity of his mercy when he goes down to hell for us. We see the infinity of his grace when he calls out to us and extends his rod and staff to us and pulls us back in. In Christ, we see the unsearchable wisdom of God. A church shall be saved through a righteous man's accursed death. In Christ, we shall behold his perfect judgment when he sits on that great white throne. And in Christ, we come to know God and we have eternal life. For the sake of Christ, through the work of Christ, and in the person of Christ, we come to have and possess that blessed revelation and receive it in truth and willingly respond with praise. Through Christ, God perfects his praise, often through the babes and the sucklings, who still the enemy and the avenger, in that they recognize it. How? A work of greatness. So let us confess, being so privileged to know the God of unsearchable greatness, let us confess his greatness In this calling, which is part of the text, he is greatly to be praised, we are at war with the stubborn resistance of the old man of sin. We have a struggle and a war in the battle to know him and to believe that truth in Christ and a struggle with regard to our response Will we stop our tongues, hold our tongues, or will we speak this truth boldly? Will we waver from it when the circumstances of life are difficult or lead our faulty minds to think otherwise, that perhaps God is not so great? Or will we persist in a confession of God's greatness? We are duty-bound to give God great praise for his infinite perfection. This is true for us as a church. 
Any hesitancy or refusal to give glory which is due unto God's name is provoking to God. It is sin, as it is a denial of His greatness, a rejection of His Son, and blasphemy of His name. God is jealous for praise. So, if we look at the history of the church, history of the departures of the church, we can see how the church at times, as it apostatizes, has denied God's greatness. Pelagianism and the semi-Pelagianism of the Roman Catholic Church and the Arminianism that developed in the Netherlands and others like them, they deny the greatness of God by refusing to give Him His due in the work of salvation. God is sovereign in all things, even in the work of saving men's souls. There is no place for man to be saved by the free choice of his will. Confess that truth. Do not deny it. Others deny the greatness of God by insisting that the way that the Bible prescribes for worship is outdated and irrelevant, and they think themselves to be wiser than God. Or, to put it differently, they think God isn't so wise at all. There is a better way. And they worship Him in another way that God abhors. And they get rid of the lively preaching of the Word. Still others deny the greatness of God by refusing to acknowledge that God is able to do works that are astounding. A work like raising the dead. Can God raise the dead? There have been, like the Sadducees, some who deny it. Similarly, there are those who deny that God makes the totally depraved sinner a new creation, alive, able and willing, by virtue of grace received, to believe and repent and to do good. The creeds and confessions of Reformed churches affirm the unsearchable greatness of God. They do so by defending and confessing what has been revealed. And they also do so, if you study the creeds, by stopping in areas that are too deep for us and admonishing the churches to be careful and humble with doctrines that are revealed and exceedingly profound. Individuals can deny and thereby not make a confession of God's greatness. We do this when we're proud and we rely on ourselves, sometimes because we think think we're special, other times because we have forgot or we think that God's arm has waxed short. He can't save me from this. I must do some work. Other times we can become bitter when we don't understand his ways or seek vengeance when we've been wronged rather than trusting with meekness that he shall make the crooked straight. We might become impatient and discontent and think, God is not great in his goodness. 
we might despair and think God is not great in faithfulness. Morning by morning, do I always see mercy? And from a certain point of view, every sin is a denial of God's greatness. From Adam's sin in the garden, rejecting God's sovereignty and rebelling in his rebellion, to David, who sinned in his adultery and tried to keep it hidden, as though God, our great God, does not have eyes in every place. Peter, denying Christ three times, as though God could not save through a suffering Savior. How have you denied God's greatness? Look at your sins, your besetting sins, your lamentable fall, and mine. What are we, how are we blinding ourselves to a certain aspect of God's greatness? And how might seeing the greatness of God in Jesus Christ powerfully correct us and restore us? So let us be humble, especially in the knowledge of God and the confession we make about the doctrine that we have been given. We confess it without shame, but without boasting, and always recognizing that that we know not yet as we ought to know. Confess the God of perfect goodness and trust Him and be content. Confess the God of great mercy and be confident and hopeful in God, the God of plenteous mercy and redemption. Be bold in the face of difficulty and opposition exactly because God is greater. The one who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And do not waver from your commitment to praise and serve God, let that we might show his praises to the world and make known the greatness of his strength to the generation which is to come. Examine your heart for sin, but also examine your heart for the faith which God has given to us. And rejoice that you have come to know the God of perfect greatness and infinite greatness through Jesus Christ. And make this your confession with your words and with your deeds. In times of the greatest afflictions and challenges, in times of your deepest distresses, when you are most concerned about your future, 
or about the church's future. Jehovah is great and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. In everything we think, say, and do, with our whole heart and forevermore, there is no higher purpose than to praise him. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy great name. Truly, we have been humbled. May it also be that we have been encouraged, and that when we have been admonished for our folly of denying Thee, we might be turned by the grace of Jesus Christ to confess Thee again, to confess Thee with patience, and confess Thee with joy. For in all of thy greatness, thou dost work things together for our good. Amen.